0: Hey, Three Crosses family, welcome to the Going Deeper podcast. AJ Venegas here. We're so excited to go deeper into Scripture with you guys. This is something new we're trying, so if you have any questions that you'd like for us to address in these conversations, feel free to send me an email avenegas at threecrosses.org. With that, let's go deeper. Here with Pastor Danny. Pastor Danny, thanks for stopping in, and uh, we're going to be going over 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 12 today.
1: I can't wait. It's going to be great.
0: Because we're we're hitting that gas pedal. Uh, The first episode, we went through only two verses, and now we're deciding to go through nine different verses, which is um, a big leap, but there's going to be a lot of fun things that we're going to get into. Uh, The first question is just a basic question. Why did you decide on 3 through 12? Why did you decide that specific breakdown?
1: I started when I'm putting a series together like this. I started probably back last November, so you know, six, seven months ago, just studying this on my own, breaking it up into sections. And I originally had these verses as several different sermons because there's so many great themes here that get fleshed out throughout the book. And then as we got closer and I started pull, pulling the commentaries, looking at the Greek language, the biggest reason this became one verse is, or one sermon is because verses three through 12 are one gigantic sentence in the Greek language. And so I live a little bit of that tension where even at a whole book study level, I always feel like the epistles are designed to be read by a church in one sitting, and yet we break them up into 20-week series. <laughs> and so the same thing, even here, it's like, okay, this is one sentence. Am I doing injustice to the text by breaking up into several sermons? And so I said, you know what, let's just, this. the function of this is to be one unit. So let's preach it as one unit. And I'm glad we get to do this and go a little deeper into it because there's a lot of stuff that we're not gonna be able to hit just in the sermon time on a Sunday morning.
0: Right. And I know we were talking about what's on the cutting room floor in this episode. And you said one of the things is on the cutting room floor is something that encapsulates the entire passage. So can you explain to us what makes this passage unique?
1: We talked a little bit last week about the structure of Greek letters like epistolary literature in the greek language and kind of how they start out with who it's from the audience and actually verses three through 12 forms a customary entry point for a lot of greek epistolary literature it's a a section that in greek letter writing is called the exordium or i think the latin is exhortio which is where the author of the letter either sets the tone for the letter by praising or condemning the Mm. audience Right? So if you read Galatians, it starts with Paul just coming out, guns blazing, you foolish Galatians, who have bewit who has bewitched you, right? Why are you forsaking the gospel? And in First Peter, it's the opposite. This exhortio is is where Peter takes the moment to praise, usually the audience, but in this exordio, Peter's actually praising more than anyone else, God himself, right? So verse three starts with, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has, dot, dot, dot. And so the reason these form one sentence is this is a very specific section in letter writing where the tone is set for the letter to come by introducing some of the themes, but by mostly, Praising the audience and letting them know this is going to be the type of letter that is not a severe letter This is going to be the type of letter where i'm bringing encouragement to you and praise to our god
0: I know one of the frustrating things about reading the epistle. Sometimes there are these opening uh, Sentences that kick the entire letter off and it's they're really long. They're really hard to get through so uh, For this question. I want to unpack The first portion of this letter, uh, let me read it real quick. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, feels like a run-on sentence, but I want to break down each word because there's something unique going on uh, culturally in the first century church uh, in each of these words. So I want to start out with that first line, in his great mercy. Uh, the Greek word there is elios, and it's connected to a very strong Hebrew word, actually. So can you explain a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So in the in the Hebrew Bible, the the word that kind of pops out at us kind of like a lot of times for us, you know, here we have the mercy word. We also think of agape as this word in the New Testament that's like the quintessential Christian love word. Old Testament, First Testament Hebrew Bible, the, the Hebrew word that pops out all over the time is, is chesed, this idea of God's covenant love. God has this great mercy for his people. He cares for them deeply. He has an everlasting relationship with them. We think of Genesis 12 and Abraham and God promising him forever and ever and ever land and blessing and offspring. And all of this is part of this category that's referred to the covenant love of God, the chesed of God. And so in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, this this word for mercy, uh, what did you say it was? Helios?
0: Helios, yeah.
1: Helios is the word that, uh, how the the Greek authors translate hesed mm. into Greek. And so really we're, we're catching a glimpse that one of the things that Peter's going to talk about a lot is the the covenant that God's people have with their God, um, which is going to come up a lot over the next few weeks um, in the text and maybe in this podcast as well.
0: Absolutely. In his great covenant love, he has given us new birth. So you mentioned that there's something unique with Peter's language here going on in terms of giving us new birth. Um, could you explain a little bit uh, deeper on that?
1: Yeah, so this is one of those words. Here's a really fun word that you guys can use uh, to make yourself sound smart. Hapox legomenon, um, which hopox is, uh, is a word connected to the Greek word for one, legomenon, uh, like legomai or lego means uh, to speak or word mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, and so a hapox legomenon is a word that's only used once in the Greek New Testament. And so this is a, a, a hopox that Peter uses that he kind of creates this word out of two other words, right? The word for birth uh, is one of that. Ganao is the word mm-hmm. for birth. Do you know the other one? I think you know all yeah, these Greek
0: so words. Yeah, so uh, which is anaganeo, is from above. New
1: birth from above. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this is a concept that Peter chooses to use this new word, um, which is fascinating because uh, two reasons. One, Peter is famous for using concepts from the life of Jesus, especially moments he was there for right? And so we don't know if he was there when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter three, but we do know that Peter's familiar with the life of Jesus. He lived this life with him. And so this is one of those times that this concept of birth from above mm-hmm. is a concept that we see introduced to us as believers in John three, when Jesus starts telling Nicodemus about being born again, born of water in the spirit, being born, um, from above. And so that's a fascinating, uh, kind of creation of a word from a concept of Jesus where Jesus says there's this spiritual birth coming that Peter's borrowing from. And the other thing that's awesome is this answers the question of how do believers get their inheritance? Because really, you know, when you read Paul's literature, uh, They get their inheritance because they're adopted as sons from God. So they have a legitimate inheritance as adopted heirs, sons of God. In Peter's language, we get this inheritance because we are born of God. We're born from above. And so we have the rights of heirs and sons uh, to the inheritance. And I say sons, not sons and daughters, because of the uh, intentionality that New Testament writers use to say, uh, we get, whether we're men or women, brothers or sisters in Christ, we get all the rights and privileges as the firstborn son, the heir of the promises. And so this birth from above legitimizes our inheritance that he talks about. And it also borrows from Jesus' own language of how spiritual birth happens.
0: Which is exactly where Peter goes with his next statements. So in his great Hesed, covenant love, he has given us new birth from above into two things, a living hope and what you said, an inheritance. Mm. There's some cultural things going on when we try to understand both living hope and inheritance. Living hope, uh, kind of getting into the Greek thought, original thought of the first century church, but also inheritance. Uh, Like I think of inheritance as like, am I in my grandpa's will or am I going to get like the finances or stocks, investments, whatever uh, your inheritance looks like. Uh, So give us a little window into the cultural understanding of living hope and inheritance.
1: Yeah. You got to go back to the last week where Peter is placing the geography of these folks within the Greek world, right? And part of the reason they need hope is because they're living far in, a, in an arena where there aren't a lot of believers around, they're scattered abroad. And so they're right in the middle of this Greco-Roman world in the Northern Mediterranean region. And so Peter draws from a couple of Greek concepts to remind them why their faith is better than living as mere citizens of this world. And so Part of it is the fact that they have a living hope. So they have a hope, not merely in the afterlife, but a hope today. But they do have a hope that's different than folks who live in their world, where what's the point of life? What's the point of existence? Life is meaningless, right, in this uh, Greek uh, philosophical construct. Because where does it end, You die, your soul kind of flutters off to this aimless afterlife and you're in Hades, right? You're in Tartarus, these different Greek afterlife places. But the Christian gospel says a few things, right? One, no, you're gonna be bodily resurrected someday and have a beautiful eternity that's better than the world today, which gives you a hope in this world that something amazing is happening and will get better even later, that gives you a different perspective to address this world today. Also paired with that new life from above concept, the Christian concept of resurrection life afterlife does not merely start after we die, but part of the Christian gospel is that new life starts today. Mm -hmm. And so this living hope is not merely a better hope than the world has for the afterlife, but a hope that begins the moment we believe when the spirit gives us birth from above. And so we are, we have a hope unlike the world, but it's also alive and it's alive now. And then with the concept of inheritance, yeah, the big inheritance concept in a lot of Easter or a lot of Mediterranean cultures and ancient cultures, a lot of it's connected to primarily land, right? So not like uh, the stock market right or the cash that comes from it um, we think of the prodigal son where he wanted his share of the father's inheritance and how that was a little bit scandalous because the father had to cash out this land to give him liquid assets to go squander in a faraway place because normally inheritance was handing over the family property to the next generation. I remember being with Pastor Mark on a missions trip in Senegal. We were in San Luis, Senegal, driving to visit some church planting partners, and we saw a really strange sight. On the side of the road, we saw all of these various home sites, like sites of future homes that were just cinder block foundations, one after another after another. And we asked our guide, what's going on here? Why did they start to build all these homes where they didn't finish? And he said, oh, actually, it's kind of sad. In our culture, if you have additional liquid assets, you are, obliged to share them with folks who are in need in the community. And so people in our community who don't want to hand over cash to the needy buy property and begin to build homes on them because if you own a home, your cash is not liquid. It's tied up in the property and you don't need to share it, right? And so this is kind of this concept of land is something that is tangible and passed down and held, uh, and cash is something that you just have to spend on your day-to-day expenses, and then you give the rest away. And so when you think of an inheritance concept in the biblical literature, it's almost always talking about the land, the property, because people didn't have a lot of liquid assets that gets handed down to the next generation. So same thing, read, go to Genesis 12, you'll see that there's a huge land promise tied up with the inheritance of the covenant people, that this is the whole idea of the nation of Israel, The idea of uh, just this vast place that God has given his people. And so for us, part of what, what Peter is reminding and encouraging his audience is whether they're a Jewish audience or a Gentile audience, they're heirs not merely to the afterlife, but to the land that will be given that we will live in God's kingdom on this dirt with him as his people forever and ever. So in these last times, even when you're on a foreign land, know that you're an inheritor of the kingdoms of this earth. Earth, and someday we will rule and reign with God forever and ever and ever.
0: Which I love that concept of reigning forever and ever in that land, because that's what exactly where Peter goes again. This inheritance can never perish, will never spoil or fade. And so there's one last nugget in there. All these uh, Greek words start with alpha or the A, and uh, that's just a fun little nugget on this Going Deeper podcast. But I want to zoom out for a second and Talk about the big picture of this passage, talking about Hesed, new birth, living hope, inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Uh, one of the things I noticed is what Peter didn't say here. Um, much like Paul's writing, Paul will go into the logic, uh, the theology, uh, the the Old Testament history that all led up to Jesus Christ. And we're only five verses into First Peter, and he just goes right for the jugular. He goes right to the resurrection. What do you think Peter's strategy is? is here for presenting just the resurrection and you know thinking about the intro passages um the sprinkling of the blood the obedience the uh, foreknowledge all of those concepts that peter draws out so much what do you think peter's trying to do here by just going for it
1: i think one of the things that peter does throughout this book is try to ground these people this audience in their place in god's overarching redemptive timeline right so you think of Paul in a Romans, who's walking people through the gospel, through the lens of, right? Like we are sinners, Jesus came to pay for sin, right? the whole gospel as we generally know it. Peter's got a different focus because Peter's talking to these folks who are scattered abroad, they don't know their place, where do I belong, right? What land am I in? And so Peter's trying to ground them in a bigger picture gospel, right? We talk about the covenant language from the First Testament. He grounds them in this idea that the prophets of the Old Testament spoke to this moment where the tides of history would turn at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now we're living in these last times in obedience to him, receiving the spirit, awaiting the promised kingdom. And so where Paul's gospel is a very individualized, forensic, this is how I got saved description, Peter's depiction of life with Christ is very historical timeline based of covenant from the Old Testament, resurrection of Jesus, initiating a new kingdom that is coming, but is here now. And so really he's not intending to walk us through the mechanics of the gospel as much as show us our place in the overarching redemptive timeline as God's people now grafted in, if we're Gentiles or experiencing, if we're Jewish believers, the covenant love of God that
0: will last forever. Peter goes on in verses six through nine saying in all this, in all that you just described, you greatly rejoice though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, You love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's verses six through nine. Uh, Another fun little nugget in this Going Deeper podcast. Uh, There's an inclusio here uh, between "you greatly rejoice" and "glorious joy." Those same words. A lot of people believe that there's an inclusio in between, which are essentially brackets which highlight the middle of the bracket, mm. saying that there's suffering involved in this in this Christian life. And so one of the questions I wanted to come from the skeptic's perspective is, you know, one of the biggest complaints in our younger generation is the idea that there is a God who would even allow suffering. And so we're thinking about this faith that protects us for this inheritance, but it's also the same faith that might lead to suffering. And so what I want to ask you is, um, isn't there a better way for a, a sovereign God to get glory to himself than suffering?
1: Hmm. And when you were talking about the, the skepticism that comes with human suffering and a, and a good God, I'm thinking about two different categories of suffering. Because part of that is that legitimate question, this idea of theodicy is the big philosophical term of how can a good God allow suffering? We think of terrible things that happen in this world and wonder how can God allow something like that? The suffering that Peter's talking about is a separate type of suffering. I would put in a different category because it feels like it's the type of suffering that we generally don't question. Right, Peter's talking about various types of trials, and we hit uh, on the Sunday morning sermon, hit a, a few different types of those trials. These are things that Christians experience in response to having a faith in Jesus in the midst of a hostile world. Right, so people think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. Peter says, or uh, you're in a marriage where it's difficult because your spouse is not a believer. We see in a few chapters, right, or or even this idea of of suffering bodily for following Christ, or things like martyrdom, are big issues. Like people losing their life for Jesus. But martyrdom is rarely something that a skeptic would bring up and say, if God is so good, why do Christians die for their faith? Because it feels like a different category. This is suffering for our faith, in our faith. And yet for us as believers, that's a big thing we have to wrestle with is why would God and what is the role of suffering for the believer in the life of the Christian faith? And we grab passages, we think of James 1 verses 2 through 4 about the the testing of our faith, developing perseverance. Peter here uses that word refining, that part of the purpose of suffering is it refines us and prepares us for the kingdom to come. And so God has a purpose in it. And the big why question in the midst of Christian suffering can be paired with the concept of this is how God chose to initiate the gospel itself, right? So we believe that the reason we have redemption is because God himself saw fit to leave his throne, step onto earth, suffer as a human and suffer death on a cross for the sins of humanity, then rise again in power. And so really Peter and Paul both talk about in their epistles, the fact that much of Christian life is modeling Christ in the suffering we experience here, that as he suffered on the cross, we will suffer in this world. Some of us, even unto death, like Peter would in his life. Um, some of us, um, but all of us experience suffering at some level. And so this is part and parcel of the Christian life because if we follow Jesus, we we don't merely follow him into good times. We follow him into the life of Jesus, which included suffering for his faith, for his righteousness. I love how Peter says later, not you know, no suffer as a thief or a meddler, right? But suffer as a Christian, praise God that you bear that name because suffering needs to begin with us as the household of God, because there's a refining power in experiencing suffering, whether it changes us in this life or in some way, like Peter alludes to as well, prepares us for the life to come.
0: The fact that those are connected by the inclusio brackets of rejoicing, again, I think goes back to your exordium point of like, hey, this is why we rejoice and that's so unique in this world that we can rejoice because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character hope, which I think is a fascinating aspect of the Christian faith. Um, Let's move on really quickly to 10 through 12. I'm not going to read it, but there are two key characters uh, at play here. First are the prophets that are telling us about this salvation uh, without maybe even knowing it. And then second are the angels. And so this is more just of a clarification question. Um, What exactly is going on here? And how does it affect the way we read the scriptures, especially the prophets? Do we read dual meaning into those prophets? Do we read Jesus into everything that they're saying? Uh, And then the angels. I know there's a lot of question that happened on Sunday about this particular aspect. What What is Peter talking about here?
1: Yeah, this is again, Peter, connecting us into why... It's great that we are where we are today, not in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, but why it's great that we are at this point within the salvation timeline of God's people uh, because, and he uses these two different characters, these prophets, these angels to point at why you're in a great place right now. And so, you know, there's two schools of thought on who these prophets are. A lot of folks say, oh, these are the Old Testament prophets. These are the Hebrew Bible prophets who are pointing to the sufferings of Christ, the glories that would follow. And those folks, even though they didn't know what they were doing in the world, they had a point in God's redemptive timeline. And so do you, right? And that's a, that's a cool encouragement. Um, the more I've studied it, the more that I, I'm starting to align more with folks who say, no, actually what he's talking about is the prophets who've existed here in the early church. You read in the book of Acts, a couple of glimpses of prophets, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about prophecy and the role of prophecy within the worship service of the early church church and Peter is saying, hey, when the Holy Spirit is seeing fit to speak into this generation through humans, he is talking an encouraging word to you about where you are right now, right? So either way, however we dice it in terms of who these prophets are, what he's saying is when the Spirit is seeing fit to speak into the world through human megaphones, he is bringing a word of encouragement about where you are right now. This is amazing, they're serving you. You heard about this grace, you're in it, right? In this exordium context, keep on, keep it on, you're doing great, God is great. And when he gives us glimpses, it's a great glimpse. And the angels are folks that he brings in too to say, you know what, when the angels look at you and the church and the salvation history timeline of God's people, they are blown away at what's happening. All right, one thing that's drastically different between the angelic beings as God's creation and the human beings as God's creation that we see throughout the new Testament and throughout all of the scriptures is that for angels who have fallen from grace, there is no hope of redemption. There's this concept that the angels who rebelled are bound and cast in a lake of fire for all eternity, right? Satan and his angels, that kind of thing. There's no story in the Bible about angels asking for forgiveness and receiving it. It's like their sin cast them into eternal torment And yet for humans, angels who have experienced this separation from God and, you know, also angels who are worshiping God, they see that what God does for the human race is he comes down and the gospel emerges. He suffers for them. He raises for them. He ascends back into heaven and he provides a pathway for redemption and salvation for humans who've all gone astray and rebelled. And so I think Peter's grounding us to say, you know what? The place you're in is amazing. It's like the author of Hebrews says, it's better than the angels, right? Uh, The angels long to look into these things. The image there is that I get from the Greek language of long to look is I always get the picture of like a little kid at a ballpark standing like outside the outfield fence, like looking over and longing to look into what's happening on the inside. So this is what's happening with angels. They're looking into what's happening between God and humans. And they're thinking, this is magnificent. The prophets have said, this is magnificent. Salvation has come. And so you in this moment on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in these last days with his spirit awaiting the kingdom, starting to walk into newness of life, are in a brilliant and beautiful place, even though now in the midst of that inclusio, you had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials for a little while. You are in a good place. Keep on keeping on.
0: It's fascinating. When you were talking, I was thinking of the passage in 1 Corinthians 12 that talks about the spiritual gifts and kind of puts them in an order, and it says uh, Christ has given the church first the apostles, then the prophets. And that kind of came to mind of like how important these prophets are and, you know, the importance of the gift of prophecy. Uh, Just a little tidbit there. But I want to close this episode with one final question. Um, If you've been paying attention in your study at home, um, you might have noticed that three times this word salvation has appeared. So salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The end result of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. And now the salvation that was predicted uh, by the prophets or that is being predicted by the prophets and peered into by the angels. Um, in terms of the exordium attitude and feel that you're, that Peter's trying to create here, I want to spin that to you as a pastor, the senior pastor of Three Crosses Church How are you trying to create this same atmosphere so that we can all look to our salvation um, and not give up?
1: Uh, I love that question because that's a, you know, this is why it's so beautiful to be able to do this level of study into a text of scripture because we get to see not just what's being said in the text, but even what the heart of Peter is for his audience. And Peter's heart for his people are the same heart that we have our church for the people here of the east bay which is uh similar to peter's time a a environment that's not a christian environment by and large right and and in this exordium section of the text the exordium says you know you guys you're doing great i have no (laughs) i have no condemnation for you god is great god is at work you're in a good place you're doing great this is according to his plan keep on keeping on and I love that because it's Peter is encouraging them to keep on keeping on in the world in which they live, but saying that God has an amazing plan for them in that world, even when it's hard. And I love that tension of Peter's not saying, Hey, huddle together as the church. The world is scary. Come on in here and find safety. He's not saying, yeah, we're in this God forsaken place. What's happening to our culture? He's saying, no, no, no. God is at work in your life, God is at work even in the midst of this hostile culture in which you live, there's a function in that for you and even I love one of my favorite sections in Peter is when he says uh, that when folks are coming after you for your faith, they think you weird, you're weird, they think you're strange, uh, that somehow they're gonna see who God is through the midst of their heckling and your response, right? Um, and so there's a, a beauty that Peter brings to these people, even in the opening verses, where he says, you know what, you guys are doing great, you're in a good spot. Yeah, you might stumble and fall, but Christ will forgive you, right? We talked about that last week. But he is working even in the midst of the hardship of this world. He is working to refine you into your his image, prepare you for his eternity, and use you amongst these pagan folks in this world to come. And so my message for our church would be Peter's message for his churches he's writing to. You're doing great. You're on the right track. Keep on keeping on, keep doing what you're doing because God is on his throne. He is good. And you are in a fantastic moment in the history of the world and in the redemptive timeline of our God. And there is a covenant that you are in and a kingdom waiting for you on the other side of this. And it's all part of his sovereign plan since from the beginning of the world.